I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Taking a break in our series in Thessalonians. I love this passage, and if you don't already, I hope you will after our time in it. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll look at verses 42 through 49. We'll start reading at verse 35 for context. As we come to hear God's word, would you bow with me in prayer? Oh Lord, how sweet it is to be in your house on your day, the day on which you were raised from the dead for our salvation, this day which is a foretaste of glory to come and of eternal rest. We ask that you would be at work in us to do what is pleasing in your sight, that you would renew us in the inner man, that you would call sinners to faith and repentance in you, for in you alone salvation is found. And may your people glory in you in the resurrection life that you have and will give at your glorious day, we ask in your name. Amen. And please stand as we hear God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven." Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. If God's word was a mountain range, this passage is Mount Everest. John Murray says in one of his writings that in this chapter and in this passage in particular, Paul provides us with what is one of the most striking and significant rubrics in all of Scripture. As you may know, throughout this chapter, Paul is talking about the resurrection of the body. 
Death is the last enemy, but it does not have the last word. Resurrection of the body is central to the believer's hope. Christ has overcome death by his own resurrection from the dead. And all who are in Christ now, in the words of Christ himself, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And Paul talks about the resurrection from many angles in this chapter. But he does something here in this passage that many of us may not be familiar with. So the main point he's driving home, the main angle he's looking at the resurrection from here, is that the glory of the resurrection surpasses anything ever seen in all creation, and it is the sure hope of the believer. So first of all, our first point is the context. This section, roughly the second half of the chapter, from verses 35 to the end of the chapter, Paul is answering some questions regarding the resurrection body. How does the resurrection of believers happen? What what kind of body is the resurrection body? What kind of body do believers receive at the resurrection? And the basic answer is that the resurrection body comes about by the power of the Holy Spirit. Resurrection body is enlivened, renewed, and renovated by the Spirit. No matter how much decay the body of the believer undergoes, whether it's in the grave for a day or for a million years, resurrection power belongs to God. He is able to raise his people from the dead, and he will do so, Christ himself being proof of this. And in verses 35 through 41, Paul is setting up the contrast. He's setting up the contrast of the character of the dead body of the believer and the resurrection body of the believer. And he illustrates this contrast from nature, using examples from the the created order. And we see in in nature that different things have different characteristics. Look back at, at verse 39 into verse 40. Paul says, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. In other words, not everything in nature has the same kind of existence. Heavenly existence is different from earthly existence, for example. So Paul is doing this, directing our attention to things in the created order, to illustrate the glory of the resurrection body. So he's saying that you see that there are different qualities of life, different qualities of different things in nature, Now let me show you the difference between the believer's dead body and the believer's resurrection body. So he's setting up this contrast. So that leads to our second point. Second point is two kinds of bodies, verses 42 through 44. Look there at verse 42. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. So this is the contrast between the dead body of the believer and the resurrection body of the believer. And he gives us those three contrasts, those three contrasts of opposites, what is sown versus what is raised. So if you could imagine, if we're in a classroom setting, if we had our our whiteboard up here, we could have two columns and write down the the contrast Paul is making between the dead body of the believer and the resurrection body of the believer. So we could have the left side of the board, our left column, we'd write down the negative side of the contrast. We could write down those three negative things, perishable, dishonor, and weakness. Those things describe the dead body of the believer. That's how it is sown. 
That's our, our left column. And then we could go to the right side, make another column, and write down the positive side of the contrast, and write down those positive things, imperishable glory and power. And the, these things describe the resurrection body, both of Christ and of all who are in Christ. So the, the dead body of the believer is perishable, dishonor, and weakness, and resurrection body is raised imperishable glory and power. So that, that's, that's the contrast between those two kinds of bodies Paul is making. So we could say at this point to Paul, okay, but could you summarize this? How, how would you summarize this in one word? And that brings us to verse 44. Look there at verse 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So that's, that's another way to phrase this contrast. These three things we've seen, summarize it in one word. Paul sums up his contrast of the dead body of the believer and the resurrection body of the believer with one word. Dead body of the believer is natural. Resurrection body of the believer is spiritual. That summarizes what he said up to this point. So we can make those, those words our headings. This is the natural body, the dead body of the believer. And this is the spiritual body, the resurrection body of the believer. So the natural body is characterized by perishability, dishonor, weakness. And the spiritual body is characterized by the opposite, imperishability, glory, and power. Those are the two kinds of bodies, natural and spiritual. So at this point, this is all fair enough, e easy enough to follow, but we, we need to answer a key question. We're saying that Paul is calling the resurrection body of the believer spiritual. Well, what could that mean? How, how could the resurrection body be spiritual? And this is where false teachers are going to try and paint you into a corner, try, trying to, to deceive you. Jehovah's Witness, for example, comes to your door. They take you to this passage. They try to convince you, See, it says right here, the resurrection body is not physical. Resurrection is immaterial. It's bodiless. It's spiritual. Christ did not rise bodily from the grave, and neither do believers. After all, look, look at verse 44. Paul says the resurrection body is spiritual. And you Christians, you, you wrong Christians who aren't part of our, our cult, you believe in a bodily resurrection, but you're wrong. It says right here, resurrection body is spiritual. Then they'll take you down to verse 50. Where, where Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So see there, resurrection is not physical, it's bodiless. Because Paul says it's spiritual. That's what false teachers will tell you. Well, here's the problem with that. That's not what spiritual means here. Spiritual does not mean immaterial and bodiless here. And, and get this down, if, if, you're writing, if you're taking notes, get this down. Spiritual here is a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely essential to get this right. You remember a few months ago when Joel Beakey was here? He touched on this a little bit, that spiritual is a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit. So really, spiritual should be capital S, shouldn't it? To, to refer to the work, the person work of the Holy Spirit. I have no idea why translators don't capitalize the S here. The, the lowercase s is, is misleading at best. So capitalizing the S is not, it's not a pedantic detail. It's essential to see that this is a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit. So that helps us understand more about the resurrection body. As a spiritual body, it is enlivened and renewed by the, by the work of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection body is the fullest outworking, the ultimate outcome of the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer. 
So the spiritual body is not an immaterial something. It is the real body of the believer transformed by the Spirit into imperishability, glory, and power. So those are the two kinds of bodies Paul contrasts. That leads to our third point. Number three, Paul contrasts two kinds of heads. Verse 45. So we've seen the contrast between two kinds of bodies. Now he's making the contrast between two heads. Look at verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. This is the contrast between Adam and Christ as covenant heads. And before we look at this verse further, remember what I said at the beginning. This passage is Mount Everest, okay? When you're on top of a mountain, you're going to struggle to breathe because, because you're so high up. That's, that's a similar difficulty with this passage. It's going to be difficult, but by the same token, it will be rewarding. So let's get some context for, the, for this contrast Paul's making between Adam and Christ. So stay in chapter 15. Look back to verses 21 and 22. Chapter 15, verses 21 and 22, Paul makes another contrast between Adam and Christ. He says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So this... This is another contrast between Adam and Christ. The contrast Paul is making here in verses 21 and 22 is between Adam as fallen and Christ as raised. Adam as a sinner and Christ as raised from the dead. So all who are in, are, who are in Adam die because of Adam's sin, and all who are in Christ are raised because of Christ's resurrection. So again, contrast between Adam as a sinner and Christ as raised. So go back to verse 45. Let's read that verse again. Verse 45. Thus it is written, The first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So this is another contrast between Adam and Christ. But it's different from what we saw earlier in the chapter. So, so look at Adam first. Adam is the first man. Paul here quotes Genesis 2 verse 7. The, the record of, of God creating Adam as a living being. Adam became a living being when God, when God made him, taking the dust to the ground and, and breathing the breath of life into him. That's how Adam became a living being. So Adam is different from the rest of creation because he is the image of God. He is a living being. And, and just think back to what, what God said about all that he created at the end of the creation week. Genesis 1.31 and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So Adam, as created, is very good. He's made from the dust of the ground. God puts the breath of life into him, and he's very good, just like the rest of creation. So looking back at verse 45, let me ask an obvious question, and we've already seen this. At which point in Adam's life is Paul referring to here in verse 45? He's referring to Adam as created as very good, as not a sinner, not fallen. Earlier in the chapter, he's talking about Adam as a, as a sinner versus Christ as raised. Now Paul is talking about Adam as created before he fell, before he became a sinner. Paul's not talking about Adam the sinner here. He's talking about Adam as created. So now look, 
look again at how Paul refers to Adam in, in verse 45. What does he call him? He calls him the first man, Adam. And look how, at how he refers to Christ. Christ is the last Adam. So Adam is the first Adam. Jesus Christ is the last Adam. We'll, we'll come back to these titles in just a minute, but for now, just keep them in mind. So again, the contrast between Adam and Christ, Adam as created, not yet fallen, Adam as created, and Christ as raised. So notice also what Paul says about Christ here in, in verse 45, that Christ became something. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. So Christ became something in his resurrection from the dead, something in his human nature that he was not before. Just as Adam became a living being when God created him, Christ became life-giving spirit when God raised him from the dead. Adam is created by God, had life from God, but, and this is the key thing to, to keep in mind in this distinction, Adam had life from God, but he was able to lose that life. Christ was raised from the dead, had resurrection life, and he's unable to lose that life. Now we're start, starting to see the contrast. So no, notice what Notice exactly what Christ became here in verse 45. Last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, I've asked this question in the classroom, and I'll ask it again here. Just from your knowledge of Scripture, when you read about life-giving spirit, what, what comes to mind? What do you think life-giving spirit means? And I asked that in a classroom setting here, and someone said, spirit who gives life. That, that's, a, that's a good answer. Well, for understanding what this is, Richard Gaffin and, and Gerhardus Foss before him are, are our most reliable guides. Life-giving spirit here is a reference to the Holy Spirit. This was, as we saw earlier, spiritual body, reference to the work of the Holy Spirit. Life-giving spirit here, also a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit here is said to be the life-giving spirit. And that's, that's just a summary of the description of the Spirit throughout the New Testament, that the, the, the Holy Spirit gives life. John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the Spirit gives life. 1 Peter three eighteen, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So life-giving spirit here is a reference to the Holy Spirit. So again, just as we capitalize the S on spiritual, capitalize the S on spirit here, life-giving spirit. We're talking about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're, if you're tracking, if you're following along up to this point, I know what you're thinking. Last Adam is Christ. Life-giving spirit is the Holy Spirit. Christ became the spirit. Are, are you crazy? Should we let the presbytery know that you've gone into heresy? Well, what is Paul saying here? What, what does it mean that, that Christ became the, last, the, the, the life-giving spirit? Well, here's what it does not mean. It does not mean that the Son and the Holy Spirit lose their personal identities, that they converge into one, into one person, not that the Son conflates into the Spirit. Paul is not denying the Trinity here. He's not doing away with Trinitarian doctrine. Rather, Paul is talking about Christ in his human nature 
and the work he does with the Spirit. As raised from the dead, this is key, as raised from the dead, Christ and the Holy Spirit are now permanently and completely unified in the work of giving resurrection life to believers. Now that Christ is raised from the dead, he and the Spirit are identified in the presence, in their presence and activity in believers. Think of how Paul makes a similar statement in his opening to the epistle to the Romans, Romans 1 verse 4, talking about Christ now being the Son of God in power. Christ is now the Son of God in power because he has been raised. Christ has always been the Son of God, always. But now that he's raised, he is the Son of God in power, in the power of resurrection life. So Christ's resurrection is the beginning of a new phase in his life. It was the end of his humiliation and the beginning of his exaltation. His resurrection brings in a new relationship in his human nature between him and the Spirit. Yes, as you look at the life of Christ, you see the close relationship of him and the Spirit all throughout his ministry. Christ was conceived by the power of the Spirit. He received the Spirit at his baptism, and the Spirit ministered to him when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Always a close relationship. But it was not until Christ's resurrection that he and the Spirit were unified in this work of granting resurrection life to believers. That relationship between Son and Spirit came to its culmination in the resurrection of Christ. So Christ is now life-giving because he has been raised from the dead. Christ grants the same life that he has. He has resurrection life, and he grants it to all who are in him. He grants eternal life, life of the new creation, resurrection life that can never be lost to all who trust in him. Romans 8, verse 11, Paul says it similarly. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, put it all together, this contrast between Adam, the first Adam, and Christ, the last Adam. Adam and Christ are not merely two individuals, two private people whose lives and actions only matter for themselves. Adam and Christ are heads of covenants. They each represent a people. And as goes the head, so goes the people. Adam represents all mankind, and Christ represents all his elect. If Adam had obeyed God, all mankind would have received eternal life, free offer of eternal life to Adam and all his posterity. But of course, Adam did not obey God. He broke covenant with God, and that is why another covenant head was needed. Christ not only obeyed God, keeping covenant with God, he removed the sin of his people as well. The work that Christ did is greater than the work that Adam did. The last Adam far surpasses the first Adam. That leads to our final point, number four. We've seen two kinds of bodies, two kinds of heads. Now we see two kinds of life. Two kinds of life. So we see more of this contrast here between Adam and Christ unpacked in the rest of this passage. Remember, we're, we're contrasting Adam as created and Christ as resurrected. And, and Paul unpacks more of, that, of, of the two kinds of life these two Adams represent. Look at verse 46. 
But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. So natural comes first, then the spiritual. Again, capital S. What, what does this mean? These are, these are the two kinds of life. These are the two orders of life that Paul is contrasting, the natural versus the spiritual. Adam as created represents the natural, and Christ as resurrected represents the spiritual. And remember the kind of life that Adam had. God called it very good. And, and this is the, the kind of life that, that Paul calls natural. But here's the problem. Even though Adam had true righteousness from God, he was without sin, he was very good as God called him that, the problem is very good is not the very best. Very good is not ultimately good. The original creation, even, the, even though it was without sin, the original creation was never intended to be permanent. It was never meant to stay that way. Creation under, under Adam was never meant to stay as it was. God made creation to be brought to its goal of confirmed blessing and communion with the triune God. That is what Adam was supposed to do by his obedience. Adam should have, he could have, and should have taken creation from natural, earthly life to spiritual, eternal life. And that is what Christ has done for his people. And unfortunately, there is so much misunderstanding about this in the, in the church. We, we think that we need to go back to the Garden of Eden, go back to the way things were when there was no sin, go, go back to, to, to the Garden of Eden where there was communion with God and there, and there was no curse on sin. You think about a, a children's storybook Bible that came out recently. It's called The Biggest Story, How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. Totally misses the point. God does not take us back to the garden. He takes us to a place better than the garden. Do you want to go back to a kind of life, the life in the Garden of Eden, that you can lose? The kind of fellowship with God that you can lose? That where, where there is a serpent, Satan himself, prowling around? Do you want to go back to that kind of life? No, we have something better in the Lord Jesus, better than what Adam had. That is what's so great about this contrast between these two kinds of life. Believers now in Christ have better life than what Adam had. Adam had losable life, and he did lose it. But we have unlosable, eternal resurrection life in the Lord Jesus. Look how, how Paul puts it in verse 47. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Just one small translation issue here. I think it's better to read of here instead of from, of instead of from. You, you may say, big deal, who cares? What's the difference? It may not seem like a big deal, but here's the reason for it. When we get to verse 47, Paul's not talking about where Adam and Christ came from, that Adam came from the earth and Christ came from heaven. He, he's not talking about that, even though those statements are true. They're just not the point here. Again, Paul's talking about different qualities of life, different kinds of life. As created, Adam has an earthly quality of life. And as resurrected, Christ has a heavenly kind or quality of life. That's the contrast between those two kinds of life. So let's reread verse 47, making this clear with, with of instead of from. Verse 47, the first man was of the earth, a man of dust. The second man is of heaven. So that, that brings out more of the quality, the different qualities of life they had. 
When Adam was created, even though he was without sin, he merely had earthly, natural life, and then he lost it. But when Christ was raised, he received heavenly, spiritual life, which can never be lost, and it is guaranteed for all who trust in him now. Adam was merely alive, and he was susceptible to death and the temptation of Satan. But Christ has the highest kind of life, spiritual life, resurrection life, and that life is granted to all who trust in him. So when you compare Adam's life when he was created to the resurrection life of Christ, night and day difference. In fact, remember how Paul starts the contrast. He's talking about the difference between the dead body of the believer because of sin and the resurrection body of the believer. But whether we're talking about the dead body of the believer because of sin or the created body of Adam before sin, as great as the difference is between those two things, whether we're talking about either one of them, they're both nothing compared to the resurrection power of Christ. They both pale in comparison. Christ's resurrection life is of a heavenly quality, and Adam's created life before the fall was merely an earthly quality. Adam's life did not have the glory and permanence of resurrection life that Christ has. What is the the point of all this? Why why do we spend so much time on this? Why does Paul unpack these things to the Corinthians? We get to some of the more practical implications of these things in verses 48 and 49. Look there in verse 48. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. All who are in Christ will be transformed from this earthly life to heavenly life at the resurrection when Christ returns. Our earthly natural bodies will be transformed to be heavenly spiritual bodies when he returns. We have borne the image of Adam, that that earthly life and image. We will bear the image of Christ at the resurrection, be transformed into his likeness. Because what Christ now possesses as raised with that spiritual heavenly life, he will grant to all who trust in him now. He possesses that life. He's the life-giving spirit. He has a spiritual body, and he has spiritual heavenly life. And when he returns, he will grant it to you who trust in him. He will grant resurrection life and give his people the spiritual body and grant heavenly life for all eternity, summed up by Paul elsewhere in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then there will be that comprehensive transformation. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death. Christ will impart to his people what he now possesses. Just think about why Paul would would emphasize such things about the resurrection in this letter. Think about what was going on in Corinth. They they hated the material and they loved the immaterial. And they thought that the immaterial, the soul, was the more important part of the person. So whether you you beat your body and and you flog yourself in some sort of ascetic way of getting closer to God, whether you live in licentiousness, 
sleeping around as the Corinthians were doing. They, they denigrated the body. So it is very important that Paul goes, drills very deep down to talk about the resurrection of the body because it has God-given value, eternal value. What you do in the body matters. There were people in Corinth, men sleeping with their stepmothers. They're showing up to the Lord's table drunk. They did not care about what happened in the body. It is key that we see the God-given value of the body because it will be raised from the dead, spiritual, imperishable in glory and honor. A few more points of, of application in light of all this. First of all, for, for the unbeliever, all that we've seen here has nothing to do with you. You will not receive spiritual, imperishable, glorious, honoring life at the last day. You will be raised from the dead. All people will be raised from the dead. But as an unbeliever, your resurrection is unto condemnation. If you do not trust in Christ now, your resurrection leads to eternal punishment for your sin. So all that we've seen here is true of you only if you trust in Christ. And on the authority of God's word, I call you to that again. Secondly, a a doctrinal point. Even if you're a believer, perhaps you're unfamiliar with much of what we've seen here. And there's much to ponder here that will only enrich your understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. So I encourage you, meditate on what it means that Christ is life-giving spirit, that he grants resurrection life to all who are in him. And finally, again for the believer, death does not have the last word. We see the absolute certainty of the hope that awaits those who are in Christ. Again, the promise in verse 49 We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Absolutely certain. Christ will give to you what he possesses. He will give you the resurrection life he now has. And even now, what we have in Christ is better than what Adam had. He only had merely earthly life, which he lost. But all who are in Christ have the guarantee of heavenly life, which can never be lost. The guarantee of a spiritual body, They'll be raised imperishable in glory and in power. May God be pleased to add his blessing to the preaching of his word.